Welcome to The Way of Christ, a path for spiritual growth presented by Church of the Incarnation in Dallas, Texas. Each week, we will explore central topics of the Christian faith and practice, emphasizing what it means to be a member of a community committed to spiritual growth in Christ. Our focus for Season 1 is Mapping the Christian Faith, and Episode 4 is titled, Who Are We? Part 1, A Pilgrim People, A Christian Theory of the Human. Today's discussion is led by Dr. Christopher Beely and was originally recorded on October 1st, 2023. Well, good morning. Welcome to week four of The Way of Christ, The Basics of the Faith, our adult spiritual formation class. I want to begin by um, bringing back to mind uh, the language of St. Paul from the third chapter of the letter of the Philippians. It's at the top of your handout. You should have a handout. It should be coming around. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider that I have laid hold of it, but one thing I have laid hold of, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, toward the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Bless us now, O Lord, as we seek to understand you more deeply, to love you more nearly, and to serve you more faithfully. Open our hearts, our hands, and our minds to your purposes in your will, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our topic this morning is, who are we? A Christian theory of the human. Who are we? We spent the last three weeks talking about how God has orchestrated everything to his purposes, and week two was on the person of Jesus. Who do we say that he is? Perhaps the most important question in the world. Who do you say that I am? Last week was on the Holy Spirit. This is God, the Spirit of Christ, who comes among us and dwells in us, and together, especially uh, among all of us as church Uh, gathered and scattered. And in week four, finally, we turn to us. Now, this might not make a lot of people happy because this is not the way of the world, right? We didn't start off talking about ourselves. We started talking about the Lord God. So this is countercultural to put this in week four, four, because we live in a narcissistic world. The way of the world is to focus on ourselves first and everything else second or third or fourth. But as Christians, we understand that that is exactly backwards. In fact, if we hope to understand ourselves, which we need to, we can only do that paradoxically by seeing God first. The true knowledge of ourselves stems from the true knowledge of God, not the other way around. In our first week, we talked about how God has orchestrated all of creation for his purpose, his ends, and his will. So life, we use that word in week one. The whole universe, and especially our human lives, are teleological. They're aimed at something. They're going somewhere. What's the purpose of our life? Well, as we think today about humanity, what is humanity? Who are you and I? 
We need to start back right there. We are created to go somewhere, to become something, to become ourselves, in fact, in Christ Jesus. We were created, in other words, to grow. There is no point in our lives, in this life on earth, at which we will be finished growing. We are always growing, and in fact, we were created to do that. We don't grow simply because we've fallen short. Our need for growth is not just the result of sin. No, we were created in the first place to grow. We are the kind of creatures that are made to dwell in something that's greater than ourselves. Let me say that again. We're the kind of creatures who were made to dwell in something greater than ourselves. We could think about other sorts of creatures, uh, uh, rocks and plants and other animals and so on. They just exist on their own plane. There's nothing wrong with an oak tree being an oak tree. An oak tree doesn't need to be anything other than an oak tree or gypsum, or mercury, or any take a mineral, or so on, or uh, my 16-year-old my pet dog is, is just a good dog, right? He's not trying to be a lion. But we are not like that. We were created to dwell and live and move and have our being in something greater than ourselves, which of course is God. Humanity, in other words, is created naturally to be receptive, to live and dwell on what comes to us from the outside, not from ourselves. Think about how contrary that is to the message of the world. We can be self-made. We think about our own wishes and our own wills. But if we look at the scriptures and the saints and the life of the church, to become ourselves, we have to lose ourselves. To be fulfilled, we have to recognize that we're actually empty, and we need to be filled from God who comes beyond us. Notice how this can work in positive or negative ways. Think about Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 15. It's, it's not what goes into the stomach that defiles, but it's what comes out of the heart. We are spiritual creatures. We dwell on the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, Jesus says, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we live on God's word, and then what comes out of our hearts is what makes us who we are. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes to the church that the church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we are individually temples of the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, Paul says, we ought not to defile our bodies through sexual impurity. Why? Because our bodies are temples, empty temples of the Holy Spirit. We can only be ourselves by being filled with God. Well, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44 takes this point a little bit further. And this is a note that parents will recognize when we're raising our, ch our children, you know how important it is who their friends are, who their influences are. In Isaiah 44, the prophet speaks about Israel fashioning idols, the unfaithful branch of Israel, fashioning idols, and then we become like the idols we fashion. 
We are what we love. We are what influences us. So we were made to grow, not towards idolatry, of course, but we were made to grow in God's spirit through the life, death, and resurrection of his son into the very nature of God. So what does our growth look like? Where, where is this that God is taking us? And that's what we want to unpack some more in our class today. Let me draw your attention now finally to the handout. You have Genesis 1, 26 to 28, this key part of the creation narrative. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and all the wild animals and over every creeping thing. And so God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing. We were created after God's image. In order to reflect God's image, we were not created to reflect ourselves. Think about an image uh, like a mirror. You know, the image of uh, a painting or an icon as a representation of uh, the, the antitype. But another image of an image is that of a mirror that reflects the light that comes into it. That's part of the background of St. Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13. We see through a mirror dimly, but one day we'll see face to face, just like the angels do. I say that on the Feast of St. Michael and all angels transferred into our liturgy today. So we were created in the image of God. Notice that the writer of Genesis goes on to specify we were created male and female in the image of God. Men and women alike reflect God's image. And this was actually a dispute in parts of the early church, not for most of the church or any of the central Catholic church. We read about this in St. Augustine, for example, where he has to defend the idea that women are created in the image of God just as much as men. Because then as now, women might be made to feel that they were second class beings or citizens or something like that. All of us are created in the image of God. Well, what is the image of God? Have you ever wondered that? Actually, different answers to that question that you might have heard. Let me point you to our second passage then. Here's the biblical and traditional answer. This is Colossians chapter 1. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things in heaven on earth were created, things visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. That's angels, by the way. Go angels. All things have been created through him and for him. He, Christ, he is himself before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. We were created in the image of God, which is to say we were created in order to reflect Jesus Christ. What is the image of God? It's Christ. 
The great early theologian, Origen of Alexandria, makes a comment on this idea. He says, it's as if we are images of the image. Images of the image of God. Jesus, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. So we're created in the image of Christ. Let's go a little further. Let me point you on the flip side of the handout. Let's read from one of the saints. This is Gregory of Nazianzus, right in the middle of the backside. Listen to the different descriptions of human beings. The human being is a kind of second world, like a microcosm. The human being is a second world, great in smallness, placed on earth another angel, a composite worshiper, a beholder of the visible creation and an initiate into the intelligible creation. King of things on earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea and so on. King of things on earth, but subject to what is above, namely God. Earthly and heavenly, transitory and immortal, visible and intelligible, all at the same time, a mean between greatness and lowliness. And skipping down a couple of lines, he, the human being, is a living creature who is trained here, growing, transformation. We are trained here and then transferred elsewhere. And to complete the mystery, we are deified through our inclination toward God. There's that idea again. We were created to be filled with something greater than ourselves, the life of God. And that becomes our identity, our definition, and our purpose. Well, let me say a few more things about the nature. What does all this tell us about the nature of creation? And again, you're going to hear that some of this really rubs against uh, the message of the world. The first is the scriptures in the church have long defended the goodness of material creation. Now, I want to try an idea on you. Imagine that you live in a world with no air conditioning. It's hard to say that in Dallas, I know. <laughs> Sorry. Imagine that you live in a world with no air conditioning, no antibiotics, no x-ray machines, and no anesthesia. Or not very good anesthesia. If you lived in that world, which is the world that the majority of humanity has lived in, you might be forgiven for thinking that material creation and life in this body is really not all it's cracked up to be. It was quite a struggle for the early church for several centuries to affirm the goodness of the material creation, to echo those words from Genesis chapter 1, that it was good and it was good and it was good and it's still good even when it's broken. One of the fundamental tenets of the church is that the material creation, including our bodies, is good, even though we suffer, and sometimes greatly. So this applies to the world, the land, the sea. We hear from Genesis chapter 28 in our liturgy this morning, Jacob's dream there. God's promise to Jacob is that he will give him the land the land in the Bible belongs to God, and it's a gift. 
So all of material creation is good. Our bodies are good, even though it and we are flawed. Furthermore, the church always wants to resist this separating that you have good stuff out there and bad stuff out there, a kind of radical dualism. The beauty of the world, as St. Paul says, bears witness to the glory of God, as you might experience looking at a sunset or a ski seascape or the mountain range. I want to borrow a saying from a contemporary theologian and publisher, Andy Crouch, and he's riffing off of Jesus' great commandment, the commandment also from the Torah, from the Shema, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Crouch writes that human beings, we are complexes, organized networks of heart and of soul and of mind and of strength that were all designed for love, to love God and to love our neighbor. I'm going to talk more about love in a few minutes. The third thing to note is that we were created for community. Back on the first page of your handout, you have the statement of this in Genesis chapter 2, the third passage. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. We were not created to be alone. We were created to have fellowship and loving community. It's first instantiated in the relationship between Adam and Eve. It then becomes the people Israel, and then through Christ, it becomes the life of the church. Heaven, you may have heard me say before, this is from St. Augustine, heaven is a city. Heaven is a community, and that's where God is growing us. We are created for community. We are relational beings. And now we have all of this information and uh, healthcare research, don't we, that shows how physically debilitating it is, terrible for our health, to be isolated and alone. So you see what a gift the church is also in that respect. Well, it's not the topic for this week, but I've already referred several times to the ways in which our human life is broken and marred and suffering and wayward. And that's the topic of sin. The ways in which we betray our creator, we betray one another, and we also betray ourselves, and then all kinds of problems follow from that. So that's just a bookmark. That's where we're going, but we're not going to talk... Um, so much about that today. We're going to focus on what we're created to be. So we're created in the image of God, which means the image of his son, Jesus. Many theologians have split these two words, the image of God and the likeness of God. Well, we're created in the image of God at some base level, but we're growing into the likeness of God, and we're not there yet. That's a pretty helpful distinction, whether you want to quibble over the words or not, the idea is what counts. True human life, in other words, is to live and be and reflect the character of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. God made human for us. You notice in Colossians 1 that we read a moment ago, 
It doesn't say that the eternal, you know, unbodily divine son of God existed before all worlds. Who existed before all worlds? Christ Jesus existed before all worlds. And that is a mystery that people have interpreted in lots of different ways. True human life is to find our life in Christ. And this means something very specific. The language from the tradition that we use to talk about what is our life in Christ look like is the language of virtue or the virtues. Take a look on the back of the handout again. The very last passage uh, from St. Maximus Confessor. Maximus writes this, anyone who through a fixed habit participates in virtue That person unquestionably participates in God because God is the substance of the virtues. For to the beautiful nature inherent in the fact that he is in God's image, he freely chooses to add the likeness of God by means of the virtues in a natural movement of ascent through which he grows in conformity to his own beginning. We were created to reflect God's character exhibited to us in Jesus Christ, and we can parse that out in different ideas and ways. And I'm going to spend the rest of my time now talking about the virtues, which are all aspects of the one Lord Jesus. Jesus is virtue. He is the good life. The top of that second page from Origin of Alexandria again. Those who've come to believe and are convinced that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ and that Christ is the truth derive the knowledge of God that calls us to live a good and blessed life. That's the good life. Beata Vita. What's the good life that we all seek? Well, it comes from no other source from the very words and teaching of Christ. St. Augustine gives us this definition of virtue. It's the second to last passage. This is a proven to be a very durable and lasting definition that a lot of later theologians have repeated. Virtue is a good quality or habit of the mind by which we live rightly in which no one uses badly. If you use it badly, it's not virtue, right? A good quality or habit of the mind by which we live rightly which God works in us apart from us, that is not by our own creating or contriving. So this language of habit, we grow in, we are created to grow in habits of mind and will and behavior, which enable us, then they become seeds or principles or foundations on which we live rightly. And this is Maximus's point uh, as well. Well, what are the virtues? There are seven that Christians like to focus on, and I'm going to talk about the seven virtues. And I want you to hear these as images or aspects of Jesus and also of qualities that you and I were created to grow into. We're not all the way there yet. We have little bits of these. We were created to grow into these virtues, and this is a picture or a map of our growth, a map of the Christian life. 
So the first three virtues are called the theological virtues. They're faith, hope, and love. Worked in us by God, apart from us. These are gifts. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith always involves an element of trust and of yearning. We're not there yet. St. Augustine says that when the Lord returns and everything is fulfilled and we are in that heaven of the city of God, our faith will become sight. We'll see face to face. We won't need faith anymore. So faith is temporary. But right now, as we live in the valley of the shadow of death, we need faith. A second definition of faith uh, was championed by our great Anglican founder, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who spoke over and over again of lively faith. He's borrowing from St. Paul and from the letter of James. Lively faith as opposed to dead faith. You can have a kind of faith and know who God is. You can even know who Jesus is. The demons knew, but they had dead faith. Lively faith is that hope and that trust in God which bears fruit. So faith is the source of our fruit. You might say faith is the source of hope and love. Third definition of faith, this is from St. Thomas Aquinas. Faith is loyal belief and trust in God. We can't trust in God if we don't believe in him. So yeah, there's an element of just basic belief, but that's not enough. It's trust, trusting all of our lives to God and a kind of loyalty to God above all others. So that's faith. The second virtue is hope. Probably gets talked about less than the other two theological virtues. What is hope? Hope is the confident expectation of God's promises. It's an expectation because we haven't received them fully yet. We've received some of them, but not all of them. But notice the word confident. Hope is what gives us the wind in our sails, that motivation and the drive to persevere, especially in the face of adversity. That's when hope shows its value. Hope is the confident expectation of God's promises. Thomas Aquinas gives this definition of hope. Hope is when we lean on God's help to attain a future good that we haven't received yet. You see how faith is already part of hope? When we lean on God's help, we entrust ourselves to God's active help to attain a future good that's difficult but not impossible to attain. Thirdly, from St. Augustine again, hope is that by which our wills are perfected. In other words, to learn to choose the good, to will the right thing is impossible without hope. Why? Because if this is all we've got, we're in pretty bad shape. We can only live rightly if our goal and our hope is in God's kingdom and the beatitude and happiness that comes there. Faith and hope. Love then is third. This is who we were created to be. 
We were created to be creatures who love. In fact, we do love already, even in a fallen, sinful condition. Love, in one definition, is the orientation of our minds and our wills and our actions towards something that we believe will bring us happiness. So we're born, we come out of the womb already loving. We're creatures of desire. We're hungry, we're thirsty, we need warmth. And moreover, we're attracted to something. And when, at least when we're healthy enough, we will do whatever it takes to get that thing. See the history of war. The beginning of Homer's Iliad. Sing the wrath of Achilles. What was the Trojan War fought over? The beauty of Helen. Love is at the root of all we do. So the biblical question then is, what do we love? Or who do we love? Love in a, another definition, is what builds up the other. Godly love, Christian love. St. Paul says, love always builds up. And so Thomas Aquinas comments on St. Paul here to say that love is the choice to will the good of another. It's a choice based on our desires and our affections. It's a choice to will the good of another. Well, and so the love of God is when all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that we are is oriented towards pleasing and extolling God above all things. We were created to be creatures of faith, hope, and love. And these are all aspects of who our Lord Jesus is. The last four more briefly... The last four of the seven main virtues are called the cardinal virtues or sometimes the classical virtues, and Christians have commented on these um, over and over again through the centuries. The first is prudence or practical wisdom, if you want. Prudence is wisdom in human affairs. It's that practical judgment. How am I to live? How am I to act? How am I to speak? How am I to be in this situation? Because every situation is a little different. Without that practical wisdom, we can't live rightly. We have to have some judgment of right and wrong and how to live in that situation. Another definition of prudence from St. Thomas again is right reason or thinking rightly with respect to our actions. So just think practical wisdom or prudence. The second of the cardinal virtues is temperance. Now temperance, you might think of temperance movement, that's one small example of a kind of temperance, but temperance is much bigger than that. St. Thomas again. Temperance is a disposition of our appetites that make them obedient to the judgment of reason, to that practical judgment. When I know that I ought to do this or not do that, and then I can carry through on it. Because what are our appetites like in our broken, fallen condition? Well, they kind of do their own thing. And that's an excellent picture of a fallen or a sinful human being is when we're guided and driven by our appetites. Our appetites are not bad. But if they're not under the control of our judgment then how can we be disciples and obey and follow the Lord? The third cardinal virtue then is courage. And you've probably heard some version of this before. It's often said, courage does not mean you're never afraid. 
Courage is overcoming our fear in order to pursue a greater good. Notice that there's a purpose to courage. Not every seemingly brave act is actually courageous because if it's in, uh, in, in the interest of something foolish or destructive, that's actually not courage. It's just foolishness. It's wrath or rashness. Courage is overcoming our fear. We are afraid a lot. But we are to overcome our fears in order to pursue the greater good. Psalm 31 says, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And finally, is the virtue of justice. Justice in the scriptures is to do or to give to someone else what is right, what they ought to be given or what they deserve. To do or give the right thing in the right situation. Psalm 82 reads, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. So in the scriptures, justice is especially tied to ministry to the widows, the orphans, the poor among us. Further, St. Augustine again, justice is respecting God by following his law to love God and your neighbor just as you love yourself. So justice is summed up in the great commandment. Finally, St. Thomas, justice is to render to each person what is his or her right and what is due to each person, what they ought to receive in the light of the law of God and the gospel of God and the great commandment. So to draw this to a close, those are the seven traditional virtues. Notice how they paint a picture of the human being. This is who we were created to be. And it's often very helpful to imagine, not so much that we're already, you know, we're already humans, we're already there, but that we are becoming human. And we will only be fully human when all of this has been accomplished in the day of the Lord and when we've been fully redeemed. What an exciting picture of life. We're created to grow, we're created to be filled with God's own life, and we're created to acquire these virtues that come to us by God's grace, faith, hope, and love, prudence, temperance, courage, and justice. All of this can only happen through a life of discipleship by the power of the Spirit and in the community of the church. So we're in for quite an adventure, and we're all on the way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We may have time for one or two questions. I noticed in um, the commentary that you selected for justice um, that the focus seemed to be more on mercy. On, on mercy? On mercy, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, the first thing you talked about was when under justice, because I take a lot of compulsively detailed notes, <laughs> um, was what we owe widows and orphans and the poor. Yeah, yeah. And then the next thing was love, to love our neighbors and to love God. Yeah. And, um, and then I guess St. Thomas left it open to give each person their right and due in the light of the gospel. But the undertone I heard there was much more mercy than punishment, yeah. which Good is I- what we typically think of 
with justice. So yes, great I didn't know if you had more to add to that. Great observation. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a very helpful comment. The answer is twofold. Um, all of God's uh, grace towards us embodies all of these virtues. There's nothing that God does that is not just. Now, I did give examples uh, of mercy, but when we think about the commandment to love, um, all acts of, uh, of training, of uh, discipline, and so on are also acts of love. So sometimes we think the word love only includes mercy, and now I'm kind of coming down to the second. It's all just, and it's actually all merciful, in fact. Uh, but you're quite right to note the difference between what we call um, justice uh, and mercy. So um, giving to another his due, that's a classical definition of justice. Christians accept that with a lot of qualifications. Uh, we all know that none of us deserves any of the good that we receive, and yet uh, a loving father, the scripture tells us, always uh, disciplines his children and so on. So both of those ideas are present. That's a really good observation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for pointing out that uh, women were created in the image of God just as men are. You're welcome. And <laughs> sometimes I think that gets forgotten. And in thinking over all the virtues you've mentioned today, they're equally applicable to men as women. So there's nothing yeah. that's particularly... That's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, male appropriate in any of these. So is it possible, I think it's possible, to think that Christ might come again as a woman? Oh, what a wonderful question. Um, I've heard that one before, actually. Uh, <laughs> there are other, you know, Christ could come as a fill in the blank, you know, you <laughs> get different. Well, the question of um, the gender of the risen Lord, uh, the answer is again twofold and it's paradoxical. It's a big topic, but I'm going to give you a, a short, brief answer. The first answer is that the risen Jesus does transcend gender in some mysterious way. In Christ, there is no male or female, uh, and he represents all of us. And at the same time, Christ's identity as a Jewish male is central to his role in the covenant, and that's not erased, even in his... So it's a bit of a both-and. Uh, he had to be circumcised. Uh, and so on, to fulfill the law. So uh, that's a very brief answer, Molly, but I hope it gets you thinking um, some more. So the answer is both. Thank you for listening to The Way of Christ, a path for spiritual growth. Join us next week for episode five titled, Who Are We? Part Two, A Pilgrim People, The Church as Christ's Body. Those in the Dallas area are invited to join us on Wednesday nights as we dive deeper into our weekly topic in a dynamic group discussion. This podcast is produced by Church of the Incarnation, located in Dallas, Texas. Our sound editor is Robert Nash. Our theme song is Raise a Voice by Emery. Follow us on Instagram at IncarnationDFW or on Facebook at Church of the Incarnation. For more information on our church, please visit our website, www.incarnation.org. Thank you for listening.